Brothers Book Club Podcast. We are on episode 31. That is a 3-1 of our book review series. We are here to review the Penguin Little Black Classics collection, which includes 80 classics of world literature. Today we're covering number 31, which they have titled The Telltale Heart. Uh, it's actually just a collection of Edgar Allan Poe. It's just me again this week, just Travis. Hey, how are you doing? Ryan, out on paternity leave, is still evading the podcast, and rightfully so. Um, he's got lots going on and is enjoying parenthood. It's really quite beautiful to watch if you follow him on Instagram. I'm sure you've seen some pictures. Actually, you know what? His wife, Megan, is way more active. She's got the good stuff. She's got the goods. Um, so yeah, he's uh, on parental leave, and I'm here solo potting a couple of Penguin Little Black Classics. I'm going to jump right into this Edgar Allan Poe, probably one of the most well-known authors in the United States. He remains kind of a staple of high school and even middle school curricula sometimes in English classrooms. I, even though I taught eighth grade for one year when I was a teacher, never taught Poe, though I probably would have considered some of them. His stories can be kind of macabre and sort of creepy and supernatural, so maybe content-wise it wouldn't have been the best idea. But then again, middle schoolers are drawn to stuff like that. The three stories included in this collection are... The Telltale Heart, which is probably, oh goodness, I don't want to get myself into trouble saying superlatives right away, but it probably is the Apex Edgar Allan Poe story. That's a podcast expression from another movie podcast. It's it's the pinnacle, probably, of his style, and if you wanted to embody his work in one thing, one poem or story or narrative, I guess that would be it. At least that's probably what I would pick. So there's the Telltale Heart, there is the Fall of the House of Usher, which is one of the longer stories of his I've ever read. In this collection, it's about 30 pages. And then the final story in this one is The Cask of Amontillado, which is another brief one. That and the Telltale Heart, I should have said, are pretty short, short stories. I think in this collection, they're each about 8 to 10 pages. And then The Fall of the House of Usher is closer to 30 or a little over that. And so those are the three stories that I'll be reviewing today. They'll all, you know, discuss Poe more generally throughout the podcast. So let's lay some groundwork before I dig into the stories and start doing some analysis and book reviewing. Let's start with a simple fact about me. I really dislike horror just as a genre. I don't like things that are intended to scare where that's sort of the driving factor, the driving tone behind the piece, whether it's a movie or a book or a god graphic novel, I suppose. Never really encountered a horror graphic novel. Never tried one. And it's just a genre I never enjoy. Uh, to me, at this point, it sort of strikes me like reality TV, where once, and I just had this conversation with a friend like a week or two ago at a party or something, um, I don't disrespect reality TV or anything, but I feel like once I somebody told me two or three common tricks that the shows use to create drama, just certain ways they shoot shots or use music, once you notice a couple of tropes, to me it just feels like you can't unsee it, sort of, and so it just ends up feeling a bit repetitive, maybe even manipulative. Um, And that's kind of how I feel about horror, where it just feels like there's a couple of tricks, different types of jump scares and camera cuts. And I just, 
I don't know. I guess you could leverage that argument against any genre where, you know, once you get close enough to it, gosh, I like a lot of fantasy and science fiction, but those have their genre tropes that are rampant and pretty repetitive and boring as well. So I guess you could leverage this against anything, really. Horror, to me, just doesn't... The the things that it repeats and it uses sort of as a genre just do not connect with me. Also, I'd add to that, I just don't like triggering my body's flea impulse. I don't like to feel, I don't want like my heart to be fluttering for the only reason of fear, not of like joy or, I don't know, bliss or something. I just don't, I would rather have a, an intellectual realization than a base impulse to to just run away and be afraid. That's why I, I think I don't like roller coasters. I didn't like joyriding in high school. Like that was never an activity where it's like, yeah, let's take the truck out and go 80 on the highway. I, or, you know, or on the on the country roads rather. Um, that's just not something I, that ever brought me happiness or joy, and it didn't make me feel good. I guess is the is the simple elementary way to put it. And why make it more complex than that? It doesn't make me feel good. Um, and I, I think too, ultimately, and this is why when I get into the Poe, maybe my rating will make more sense based on this harsh setup. Um, I think that it's just, I, when I get distracted by those things in horror, I can't think about or appreciate other aspects of what's going on in the, in the text or in the movie, which speaks to, I think why I respond so well or so positively to Poe. And I think some other Gothic writing and, and Gothic authors, writing doesn't trigger those feelings. I mean, it's mostly movies that do that, to be honest. And so I think like in the writing and in the written work, I can appreciate things more. I can think more. I can pause. And in a movie, it's just not designed to do that. It's like a roller coaster effect where you're supposed to keep the horror rolling and keep the feelings going and ramp up and up and up. And you get, you know, these little reprieves. I think in a, in a book, it's just the flow is entirely different. And so I did kind of enjoy this though I will review it at the end. I've wanted to frame one of these podcast reviews for a while around one big central question. I know I've been playing with the format and trying new things every episode, just throwing out different ideas, trying different things. I did a list, listing a little while back. Sometimes it's compare contrast. Sometimes, I think it was last week, I used the author's quotes to analyze the author himself and his writing. So just trying different things. But this week, I am going to deploy the one big question idea, just because I think for this Poe collection and for Poe in general, it's probably the easiest, best question to start with. And it is, what does Edgar Allan Poe fear? What is he afraid of? Or I guess inferentially, we could say, what does he want us to be afraid of? What, through his writings, does he believe or does he seem to believe stylistically or content-wise? to think we should be spooked out by because i wouldn't call these horror per se they're definitely mystery ish they're supernatural they're they're definitely creepy uh, and i think at least one of them the telltale heart and the cask actually those are pretty much outright horror um the fall of the house usher kind of plays in the middle ground at any rate that's the question for today's pod i've come up with three different answers to the question that i will unpack in turn let's uh, get into the first answer Okay, I'm pretty certain after reading these three and brushing back up on them, I hadn't read any Poe since high school, I don't think, maybe a little in college. But after brushing up on these, I'm pretty sure that Poe himself, or again, he wants us to be afraid of our senses or perceptions, especially with the eyes. He's a big eyeball guy. And as far as like an archetype or a symbol goes, eye is a, is a classic one. It's, you know, that's why it's almost archetypal in its nature. That's something that authors can deploy 
frequently and with a lot of different meanings. There's a lot of meaning kept in a person's eyes, so to speak. And it really shows up as kind of a motif in all three of these all over the place. In The Telltale Heart, for example, it is the obsession that drives the main character, the narrator, just totally mad. He says on page two, quote, I undid it, the door, just so much that a single thin ray fell upon the vulture eye, and that's the eye of the man he's, like, watching over. It's like an older man who he's caring for, and it drives him to a murderous, paranoid rage, almost, uh, and becomes, you know, he becomes a, a murdering hatchet man, and that is not the only time in any of these stories, of course, these senses kind of permeate the story. It's in the same one, even. There's this pounding and throbbing that after after he's murdered the man, which, spoiler, sorry, I try to avoid those in most reviews, but I think in this, today's episode is going to be impossible to avoid. After he murders him and kind of buries him in the house, it kind of hides him, he hears this pounding and throbbing of his heart, and that's how he's undone by himself. That's how he admits to the police that he murdered him. On page 8, he says, Almighty God, no, no, they heard, they suspected, they knew. They were making a mockery of my horror. It's his own sort of mis- misguided perceptions of sound, uh, from I probably presumably from some kind of guilt or fear that gives him away and makes him give himself away, frankly. And it's not just, you know, murderous kind of motivations or representations of guilt, I think. It's also just in the stories, one of his stylistic go-tos is to sort of mess with senses and and manipulate them and describe them. It's one of the more immersive ways these stories kind of grab you. On page four of that same story, Telltale Heart, the narrator perceives the old man and he's like staring at him through the doorway and the old he hears the old man mumbling, it is nothing but the wind in the chimney. It is only a mouse crossing the floor or it is merely a cricket which has made a single chirp. And he has this character under this in this intense scenario under watch and it's you know very creepy scene and in that he, he's verbally doubting his senses and questioning them and it seems like something that Poe I mean, as a, as a fundamental connection to your world, right, the only connection you have is through your senses, essentially, if, if not only. I'm not going to get into some philosophy. Let's leave that for a different pod. Um, but if you believe that, then the doubting of your senses has to be one of the most, you know, fundamentally horrific things you can imagine, where then nothing is real or, or things don't, that seem real aren't or you have kind of a skewed perception of the world. It's, you know, it's a pretty fundamentally horrifying idea. And Poe plays it up all the time. Let me give some quotes from the other stories too. The Fall of the House of Usher, that entire atmosphere of that 30 or so page short story just reeks with, you know, sensory sluggishness. I'm going to, that's kind of from a quote here on page 13. It says the house had, quote, an atmosphere which had no affinity with the air of heaven, but which reeked up from the decayed trees and the gray wall and the silent tarn. A pestilent and mystic vapor, dull, sluggish, faintly discernible, and leaden-hued. And that's just, I mean, as rich a description as you can get. The tarn also comes back in a pretty fierce way in the end. Um, But you can almost, you know, you can almost feel that vapor on your skin. It's like a, a nighttime fog, you know, kind of a heavy leaden fog. Just really a perfect description of the creepiness and just dead atmosphere of that place. In the, um... In the later part of that story, he returns to the eyes, which again seems to be something that is quite symbolically significant to Poe, and it's as if, you know, you can see a person's true self and soul through the eyes. That's a pretty common literary thing as an idea. 
the um, not main character of that story, the House of Usher, but the character he's staying with, the main Usher character. He has a luminousness in his eyes that utterly goes out on 28. And then later, the character observes that there's a species of mad hilarity in his eyes now and evidently restrained hysteria in his whole demeanor. And that's sort of the, the check mark that something has gone awry and that the character has become, you know, some sort of paranoid or more maniac-like version of himself. Uh, and so I think in Poe's mind, if I can extrapolate this, if your senses are, are tingling in any way, any of the senses, then things are amiss and you should be afraid. That's definitely something in all of these stories that comes up uh, with great frequency. So that's probably the first thing I'd address. The second thing that I think Poe wants us to fear are unattended to social cues or just relationships between people that have poor communication, just a lack of attentiveness to one another and a lack of social grace, I guess you could say. This gets to the third story especially, The Cask of Amontillado, which opens with the following line. The thousand injuries of Fortunato I had borne as best I could, but when he ventured upon insult, I vowed revenge. As an opening line, it's phenomenal uh, because it begs a lot of questions and sets up the narrator quite clearly and sort of already gives us the stakes of the entire story. Um, Injuries versus insult? That's an interesting thought and an interesting rhetorical difference. You know, I think, is it a matter of extremity? Is it about the intent of the actions that Fortunato has done to the character, who I don't think he's ever named? Is it about the intensity of those actions? Is it, you know, he took something too far? He paints in the story, Fortunato is kind of an excessive drunk. On 39, he says, quote, He accosted me with excessive warmth, for he had been drinking much. But that just makes him sound like a charming, drunk, rich guy, I guess, if, if that's like an uh, archetype or a type. Um, Fortunato is, of course, in that story, completely undone by a bottle of wine as well. That's the, you know, premise of the entire story as well. But you have to wonder... For all of these grudges that, you know, thousands of little mini grudges that the narrator holds, you know, what was the, what were they? What were the exact social graces that were disobeyed or the social norms that were kind of demolished or ignored? You know, the, the story really never gets into it. It just leaves it as the specter that haunts the story. And we're just left to accept that that is so egregious that this, you know, tale of revenge has to unfold in this way, according to the narrator, of course. Um, and so that's that's a story that really relies on that idea of just there's this unattended to relationship that has an imbalance and it's uh, met with brutal revenge. The caregiver in the Telltale Heart is an interesting contrast to that because we do get a bit more of his own, granted, maybe unreliable perception and ideas about the old man. But he says in the opening of the story, quote, I was never kinder to the old man than during the whole week before I killed him which, again, raises a lot of questions that go unanswered about what is the nature of a relationship? Is it his father? Is it a person he's paid to care for? Um, he never comes across as anything but just a general caretaker, and there's never any other details of the relationship really revealed. And really, they, they don't even show any interaction between them other than when he creeps in and spies on the old man and then kills him in, his, in the nighttime. Not in his sleep. He wasn't sleeping when it happened. But I think in that case... You can't tell exactly, again, what the relationship is, but to be slaughtered by someone closest to you is sort of a a haunting but kind of understandable idea. I know there's a lot of horrible statistics about 
different sort of violent crimes done to people and it's like alarmingly high numbers from people you know and I feel like that's almost a, an old expression or something about be be more worried about the people you know you know versus the people you don't um, and so that story is kind of a representation of that in a way though again the relationship is not fleshed out and so all you know is that they he's a caregiver of some kind but you can't be certain I think uh, in this way too the characters in Usher, Follow the House Usher, are the most intriguing, not a contrast to this idea, but it is the most sincere attempt at sort of true friendships and, and personal warmth. The main character who goes to visit him says, you know, I, I tried to make this person my friend. He called me my a, a true friend and I tried to go comfort him, even though he's, you know, in a bad mental and physical state. And there's a page uh, 20, I won't read the whole quote, where he really does make an effort to kind of befriend him. He talks about on page 20 uh, about how he spent a lot of time alone with the master, which is a weird oxymoronic statement in and of itself, but the master is almost like a ghost. He, on the next page, calls him phantasmagoric, and so that's, you know, he's almost not even there. He talks about how he listened to his long improvised dirges and how they'll ring on forever in his ears. He sort of listened to his poetry. He read some poetry for him. He reads him stories. He tried all these things in, you know, quote-unquote futility. And so he is genuinely reaching out. I think in this case, the better analysis in that story for character relationships or sort of social disconnection would be between the brother and the sister, which I won't say anything more of because I feel like I've already said enough about the other stories to prove this theme, but that becomes kind of the main plot point or twist in the story. She is, I guess, just to say something briefly, um, she dies in the beginning of the story and sort of it's left as this specter that sort of haunts the story and the brother doesn't talk about it and they don't really interact with her. Um, or do they? I'll let you read and find that out. Um, but that would be an interesting example again because it feels like there are some unsaid things between the brother and sister and that there's some description that implies things about them but doesn't say it. I did dig up some Wikipedia research that asserts that some scholars have dug into the relationship and found, you know, maybe the way it's written is it could be incestuous, perhaps, and maybe that's what's causing the house to be all dilapidated and crumble. That's like the decay of the family. That's their sin, this like moral sin. I don't know if I picked up on that or, you know, I, I didn't in my first reading or this reading, though, you know, I'll let the scholarship run its course and see what people think. I'll, uh, with this idea of social interaction and cues, I'm going to leave with this quote from the Cask of Amontillado, which I think sums it up perfectly. When the man is trapped and he has Fortunato trapped and is about to be entombed, he calls out and says, for the love of God, Montresor, which I think is a title or something. And then the character returns back and says, yes, I said, for the love of God, which, you know, quoting him back to himself, obviously with radically different meaning, um, an incredibly playful and devilish thing to do to someone that you're in the midst of killing to quote them back to themselves. And basically that's as close as he comes to leveraging a complaint against him directly. Again, you assume throughout the story that all of these insults have gone unaddressed and just he's suffered them in silence and this is his big revenge. And that's as close as he ever gets to an accusation is just mirroring the guy's words back in him, which feels incomplete in a way and really creepy and kind of haunting. I mean, that's, I mean, I think the last dialogue in the story, if not very close to it. So some really eerie um, sociopathic type stuff in the cask of Amontillado, that's for sure. 
So with that, we arrive at the final thing that, by rereading these, I discovered Poe wants us to be creeped out by. And I think this one's going to have the biggest reach in it, perhaps, analytically. He clearly wants us to be creeped out by first-person narrators. All of these characters, or all of these stories, have characters who narrate. They're all first-person. And so I think if you were to apply a bit of a leap or jump to that, I think he wants us to be afraid of ourselves, or maybe of him. I mean, I know he's not the narrator. He's the writer, writing the narrator. But when you have these first-person stories written in this way, it is a bit... I mean, all first-person narration is a bit invasive. It's also, weirdly, kind of a new phenomenon still in literature. There definitely have been first-person stories for a long time, but in the 20th century, they really picked up. And Poe didn't write in the 20th century, at least if he survived that long, not much. Mostly written eight, or wrote in the 1800s, rather. But it's sort of a, kind of this new form of storytelling, and it's become way more popular in the past 100 or 150 years. So compared to other kinds of literature, it's uh, sort of a different and new beast. Unquestionably, all three of these narrators are in some ways imperfect or compromised, and the kind of school classroom term for that would be an unreliable narrator, a term I checked in both the Oxford Oxford rather Literary Dictionary and the Penguin Literary Dictionary, and here's what they came up with. I'm just going to read a couple of quotes from them about unreliable narrators. Um, from the Oxford, it says, It's a narrator whose perception and interpretation of what they narrate when they do not correspond or co- coincide with the perceptions, interpretations, and opinions of the author who is or purports to be controlling the force in the narration. And Penguin adds, The term does not necessarily mean that a narrator is morally untrustworthy or a habitual liar, although this may be true in some cases, since the category also includes harmlessly naive, fallible, and ill-informed narrators. In either case, the readers offered the pleasure of picking up clues in the narrative that betray the true state of affairs. And I think those two things hit on what make these narrators so perfectly off-putting and creepy. Um, and this is why, when I said at the beginning, the Telltale Heart stands out to me as the emblematic text for Poe. It's just an incredible narration. It's so subtly written with plenty of contradictions or little subtle contradictions and odd moments, interjections. It's just a great voice that really comes to life. Um, and I think it shows both kind of a moral corruption and just sort of a paranoia that is off-putting but not frightening. It's more interesting. Uh, and I know when I, at the very beginning of this episode, laid out what I like and don't like about horror, that was sort of something that can be distracting to me in movies, but in this text, or these stories, I didn't find it distracting at all. It was interesting. And so, yeah, all of Poe's narrators here come across as compromised, sycophants, some are braggarts. They're all, though, tied together through their unreliability. I think I pulled quotes for each of them. In the Cask of Amontillado, he says, I drink to the buried that repose around us, and the narrator responds, and I to your long life. You know, so he's barbing him as he walks him to his grave, unbeknownst to him, of course. The narrator's taunting him, you know, almost kind of delighting in it, which is creepy. In the the Fall of the House of Usher, he says, I felt creeping upon me by slow yet certain degrees the wild influences of the Usher's own fantastic yet impressive superstitions. And so he's admitting to his compromise, which, sure, that may seem honest or honorable, but I bet if we unpack that narrative a bit more, we would find moments that are contradictory, confusing. The ending is kind of that way, frankly. It reads in a very chaotic manner, and so you don't really know what happens, though I think some interpretations are pretty 
obvious, but it definitely ends in a way that is intense and overload, and so you're almost left questioning what the narrator experienced. And then back to the telltale heart, that narrator begins the story with this sentence, which is just an incredible beginning. Again, he starts off with, True, nervous, very, very dreadfully nervous I had been, and am, but why will you say that I am mad? And that's just like an in Medeus Res start to a story that's perfect. It sets up the tone. It establishes the narrator is scatterbrained, and you don't know why yet, though he admits why pretty soon. He talks about his mental condition, which then has to lead you to immediately question whether anything you're about to read is valid or what parts of it are or aren't. And for those reasons, I think that no narrator here in the collection, just in these three stories, probably projects better or represents better than the one in the Telltale Heart with the complexities, the oddities, there's unresolved threads, there are details he includes that never expands upon, and I think it's just a perfect little snapshot of a person gone mad by his own admission. Well, (laughs) resistantly, or resistingly uh, by his own admission. I'll end with this quote from him on page six. If you still think me mad, you will think so no longer when I describe the wise precautions I took for the concealment of the body. First of all, I dismembered the corpse, which is ah, just an excellent transition. That is, of course, when you are trying to present yourself as sanely as possible, you immediately want to describe how you dismembered the corpse of the person you just murdered. Nothing seems more thoughtful, analytical, and really just intelligent and and so sober-minded than that. It's really just uh, an interesting bit of contradictory characterization and quite a fun read, and not very long either, which, according to this podcast, official recommendations in the year 2020, which, hey, it's the new year, you want things that aren't going to take up too much of your time. There's a lot of things you can consume out there. For all those reasons, Poe is a three. This collection is a three. I will heartily recommend any short story or poetry collection you can find from Edgar Allan Poe. There's a million of them out there. Any library or bookstore will have some kind of short story compilation. I think all of his works are probably for free online because of copyright laws and such. I think I will give it one of the highest bits of praise I can on this podcast as far as a review or recommendation goes. There were so many aspects of these stories that I wanted to unpack and talk about, but I just had to pick things to focus on. I wanted to keep a strong connected theme throughout and focus on what things I thought were the you know things he was trying to get us spooked and scared by. There were just a lot of other things to analyze, though. There were symbols we didn't talk about, aspects of especially the fall of the House of Usher, things with Gothic in the Gothic tradition that I didn't unpack or talk about, you know, story plot points and sort of conflicts that I didn't get into. And that's high praise. It's like I, you know, you have to pick a limited amount of stuff. No podcast is infinite time, and I certainly don't want this to be. I want it to be a pretty tight show, and I think that's high praise. It's definitely a go find it, go read it. The first one we've had in a little while, from my recollection anyway. So thank you, Edgar Allan Poe, for imbuing this podcast with some life, some passion, and uh, finding something for us to read in the new year. It's our first, or I think second official episode in 2020, and already we've got a strong recommendation, which is excellent. I'm very excited we could start off with one like this collection by Edgar Allan Poe. And with that, let's wrap up this week's pod. It was a real joy to read through these and share them with you, talk about them with you. I, again, hope you do find some Poe to go read. If you're interested in some more content, hey, we've got some more stuff coming up this week. I'm going to record a postscript episode. That's when we add on 
to our current book review with a little addendum. I have a guest coming on, Drew, my friend from childhood and adulthood, lifelong friend. He's going to come rejoin me on the podcast so we can talk more about Edgar Allan Poe. Maybe we'll go beyond those three stories, but those are the three that I told him he should reread, so that's probably what we'll stick to. Um, I'm sure we'll go more in depth and get a little more, I guess, spoilery, though this episode was pretty heavy on that front. Sorry about that. And so if you're interested in more Poe talk, And hey, why wouldn't you be? You know, it's 2020, guys. Let's get into some gothic literature. Look for that episode on Wednesday or Thursday. I will post it one of those two days after it's been recorded and edited. And until you hear from me and Drew later in the week, we will see you between the classics. Classics.